Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every industry has its own language. Think about what it's like to be a doctor and all those terms and phrases you have to learn if you're going to communicate with your patients and other medical professionals. What's the difference between an otolaryngologist and a nephrologist? Iotrogenic versus idiopathic, hypotension and hypertension. What if you're working in the world of finance? You need to know about things like uh, shorts and yield curves and my favorite EBITDA. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Or maybe you're a coder. Think of all the jargon you use when you're working on a project. I have a list of coder slang right in front of me. I'm told these are all real terms in that world. Rubber ducking, which is a discussion with other engineers to solve a problem. A jimmy is a new and clueless member of the team. A hydra is a bug that can't be fixed because every time you try something, two or more new bugs pop up. I don't know if that's all real, but that's what I've been told. But anyway, you see what I'm saying about jargon and a language created by people who work in a certain area. This also applies to the music industry. And if you're not familiar with all the terms that are always thrown about, you might feel excluded, out of the loop, or maybe a little dumb. And I'll say it again, that's wrong. And you shouldn't be afraid to ask what some of these terms mean. Which brings us to part two of our music industry glossary. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and welcome to part two of our music industry glossary. We're going through terms and words and phrases that make up the language of the music industry. Consider this to be something of a Rosetta Stone, so that the next time you hear or read something about how the industry works, you'll have a better idea of what people are talking about. And we're going through things alphabetically. The next word we're going to define is brought to you by the letter L, label. This is a term that's interchangeable with record company. Labels find talent, sign talent, record talent, and then market material from that talent. Those are music recordings, music videos, and other things the talent might produce. There are two major classifications of record labels, majors and indies. Major labels, and there were just three of them, are the very large multinational corporations that have offices all over the world. And right now, like I said, there were three. Universal, which is the biggest, and owned by a French company called Vivendi. Sony, which is owned by the Japanese electronics and entertainment company out of Japan. And Warner, which is run out of New York. Indie labels operate independently from the major labels. They are standalone companies that are not under the control of the big three. There are hundreds, probably thousands, of independent labels. 
But first, back to major labels. The majors have sub-labels called imprints. They are owned and operated by the major that sometimes specialize in a certain genre or corner of recorded music. Let's take a look at Universal Music, for example. It's like one of those Russian nesting dolls. The main label is Universal. And under that are divisions known as Interscope Geffen A&M, Capital Music Group, Republic Records, Island Records, Caroline Records, Isolation Network, Universal Music Group Nashville, Universal Music Latin Entertainment, The Verge Label Group, Universal Music Enterprises, Eagle Rock Entertainment, Universal Music UK, Universal Music Hong Kong, Universal Music Japan, and Universal Music Sweden. Each of those divisions are then subdivided even further into more imprints. If we look at, say, just a Capital Music Group, that division includes Capital Records, Virgin Records of America, Astral Works, Caroline, Motown, and literally dozens of others. You might even come across something called a vanity label, which is an imprint set up for a specific artist, and that gives the appearance of this artist having their own record company, but in reality, it's just an arm of the major. Each of the other divisions that we talked about, you know, uh, Republic Records, Island Records, and so on, are similarly subdivided. So while it might seem that there are all these dozens and dozens of record labels, all these separate companies, the truth is that many of them are owned by one of the three majors. But if you add in all the independent record companies around the world, we have, like I said, probably thousands of record companies all doing one thing, finding music for us to listen to. I found a song about record labels. It's a cover of a Nick Lowe song from 1991 released on an indie label called Demon Music Group, which was owned by BBC Studios. The cover is by Wilco. It came out in 2011 on DBPM Records, which is another indie company run by Wilco themselves. But they get marketing help from Anti Records, which is a sister label to Epitaph Records, and Anti has a deal with Republic Records for distribution, and Republic is one of the sub-labels of the Universal Music Group. Did you get all that? Well, I'm so proud of them up here. We're one big happy family. I guess you could say I'm the population. Now we move to the letter M. M is for manager. What exactly does an artist manager do? Well, basically, the manager takes care of all the business stuff so the artist can concentrate on the music. A manager may be a person or it may be an organization. The goal of the manager is to develop the career of the artist. The manager aids with all the business decisions, the manager is concerned with media coverage, and the manager works with the artist to promote demos to labels and venues and agents. Now, let's stop there and talk about the word agent. In the world of music, an agent is the person or organization responsible for getting the artist gigs. This is very different from what an agent does in movies and television. In that world, the agent can also be very much like a manager. So we're talking about something completely different here. But anyway, I, I kind of digress here. In music, the manager is the business person, while the agent is the person who gets you shows. Okay, wait, there's one more thing. And that's road manager, also known as the tour manager. This is the person who goes on the road with the artist to make sure that everything is organized and goes according to plan. They make sure the band is on the bus. They make sure that they get to the gig. They make sure that the venue follows through on their commitments and so on. Basically, they herd cats. Back to managers. They are motivated by a commission. 
They get anywhere from 15 to 20% of the artist's income stream. The more money the artist makes, the more money the manager gets to take home. Managers can also become very well-known unto themselves. Elvis had the awful Colonel Tom Parker. What a corrupt guy he was. Brian Epstein brought the Beatles from obscurity to superstardom before he was succeeded by Alan Klein. Led Zeppelin fans may have heard many stories about Peter Grant. Tony DeFries worked with David Bowie during the 1970s. And the very mention of the name Don Arden struck fear into many a heart. Sex Pistol manager Malcolm McLaren was almost more famous than his band. Troy Carter was the person behind Lady Gaga and has become an important tech entrepreneur. Then there's Scooter Brown. He looks after Justin Bieber. And then there's Paul McGinnis, who managed U2 for 34 years, from the time they were teenagers until 2014. And now U2 is managed by Guy Siri, who also runs fairs for Madonna. I had a chance to talk to Paul back in 2004 as U2 was about to release their How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb album. This will give you an idea of how a manager needs to think. Most artists run out of steam somewhere along the way. They either reach a creative plateau and just start repeating themselves, or a, a group might um, become a solo singer. The police or the pretenders effectively did that. Um, there are very few examples of what you two ha have achieved. And one of the things that that process delivers, I suppose, is, is, is the opportunity to correct your mistakes, either in, in business or in um, particularly in business and on the legal side. And we were able to um, recapture all the copyrights um, of the songs, um, which, which had been... You know, we did we did the usual sort of new artist deals at the beginning, and you know, it, it's not really a moral question, but a new artist usually ends up um, signing away the copyrights to their material, both in the song and in the master. Um, we did that, but over a series of renegotiations over the years, we were able to um, take them back. So that um, one of the things I'm most proud of in in professional terms, is that you two own every song they ever wrote. They own every song they ever wrote, and they own every master recording they ever made. And those are their property, and they will be the property of their grandchildren. And I think that's, that's, that's fair. We always thought it would be pathetic to be good at the music and um, bad at the business. So... That, and that was something that the band were always prepared to do. They were prepared to um, put time into understanding the business and what was important and what wasn't important about the the, the music industry. And they they had the kind of they had the discipline to, you know, at a time when they were really quite young, um, to to take um, smaller advances, if you like, but greater control over their own um, careers. And th those sort of things are, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of traps for the, for the unwary and the naive artist. And you two um, seem to have avoided most of them. U2, once managed by Paul McGuinness, now managed by Guy Osiri. 
The next word in our music industry glossary is mastering. The recording process goes like this. Songs are recorded, then the songs are mixed, which means all the different parts, like the vocals and the guitars and the drums and so on, are balanced in the most pleasing ways and then mixed down from all those extra tracks to just two stereo tracks. Then we have mastering. This is the final preparation of that two-track recording, balancing out the volume without messing with the mix, polishing the final, final, final sound of the songs with things like equalization and other studio tools. And this is done by a mastering engineer. A guy by the name of Andy Wallace applied the sharp sheen to Nirvana's Nevermind album. He accentuated the high frequencies to the two-track mix supplied by the band and producer Butch Vig. This helped the songs really cut through. By comparison, the studio mix sounds a little muffled and dull. But the most famous of all mastering engineers has to be a guy named Bob Ludwig. His credits include more than 3,000 albums from 1,300 artists, ranging from Led Zeppelin to Daft Punk. Here's an example of his work. It took four producers to help Coldplay create the Viva La Vida album, but it was up to Bob to give it its final sparkle. Coldplay and Viva La Vida, a recording mastered by Bob Ludwig. Oh, and before we leave this topic, we should mention remastering. This is when the old recordings are brought out of the vault, the old two-track recordings, and are cleaned up and otherwise enhanced with modern studio tools. They're then put back into the marketplace as allegedly new and improved versions of songs that we already know. Some are worth the purchase, some are not. One more from the letter M, and that word is metadata. This is a very, very important thing in the world of digital music. And for our purposes, we're only going to focus on what this means for music because there's other types of metadata. Anyway, metadata is data within data. Let's say you buy a song from iTunes. Inaudibly embedded within the music is a list of attributes about that song. At the very least, this means the title of the song, the name of the artist, the album title, the genre of music, the track number on the album on which it appears, the year the song was released, artwork, lyrics, and liner notes. It can also include the name of the composer, the name of the record label, the publisher, the date the file was created, the ISRC number, something that we talked about on the last show, which is the song's unique international standard recording code number, and any number of other things that identify the song right down to the most granular level. Even things like email addresses and phone numbers could be, if you wanted to, be encoded in a song's metadata. You can examine metadata in iTunes. Just click on any song, right-click, and choose Song Info, and you'll see what's there. Let's do that with the way we used to do from Queens of the Stone Age. I bought this from the iTunes store, and iTunes is very good at filling in all the metadata fields. I have the title of the song. Here's the artist. Here's the album. Here are the names of all the composers. It's labeled as an alternative song released in 2017, and it's track two of nine on the Villains album. I also have the artwork, lyrics, and a bunch of technical information related to the song, bit rate, sample rate, and so on. Metadata is really important, especially in the era of streaming. The better you tag your song, the more metadata you include in that file, the easier it will be to identify this exact recording so that when it's streamed, it'll be logged correctly 
and you'll be paid. If there is one plea I have to labels and artists, it's please, please make sure your metadata is correct and complete. If it isn't, you could actually end up leaving a lot of money on the table. Queens of the Stone Age with a song we use to underscore the importance of metadata. In a moment, we'll move to the letter P as part two of our music industry glossary continues. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible, because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the second half of a two-parter on music industry terms. The goal is to help you speak music industry. And we're up to the letter P and the phrase performing rights organization, which is sometimes abbreviated as just PRO, P-R-O. Pretty much every country around the world has at least one of these organizations. These are companies that collect money on behalf of artists and copyright holders for public performances of songs. The main one in Canada is called SOCAN. That stands for the Society of Composers, Authors, and Music Publishers of Canada. It grants licenses to anything and anywhere that plays music in public. And then they distribute that money, the money they get from the licenses, to owners of that music. Clubs and venues play music in public, so they need a SOCAN license. Stores, restaurants, businesses, offices, and how much they pay is determined by a series of parameters like floor space and number of speakers and a bunch of other things. Radio stations play music as part of their business model, so it's only fair for the stations to compensate copyright holders for the use of their music. In Canada, the amount of commercial radio station, like the one you're listening to now, how much they pay depends on their revenue. The more money the station makes through selling advertising, the more the station pays our performing rights organization. Canada also has a second organization called ReSound. It collects a similar sort of fee from music users called neighboring rights. While SOCAN fees go to the songwriters, composers, and music publishers, neighboring rights fees go to the musicians on a recording and the record label. Then there's another fee collected by the Canadian Musical Reproduction Rights Agency. When a business, like a radio station, makes a copy of a song, let's say transferring a digital file from one hard drive to another, that's a musical reproduction, and the station has to pay an annual fee for the privilege of making that copy. In the U.S., things are different. The three main performing rights organizations are ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. They collect for public performances, too. But when songs are played on American radio, the only fee stations pay are to the songwriters and the publisher. Nothing goes to the performers or the holder of the song's copyright. Why is this the deal in America? Well, because American radio stations believe that their airtime has value as promotion. Hey, we play your song on our station, which is like advertising what you do. Therefore, we don't believe we owe you anything. The United States is one of the few countries in the world that has this attitude. So what does it mean? Well, if your band records and releases a cover, in other words, a song you did not write, and that song becomes a hit on the radio, you earn zero from that song for its radio play. No fees for you. However, 
the songwriter and the publisher do get paid. Now, compare that to Canada, where because of other things that we have, like neighboring rights and CMRRA fees, you will get something for your cover. This was a big hit for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The best estimate is that it's been played in North American radio about a quarter of a million times. Most of that airplay came in the United States, where the Chili Peppers earned nothing for their efforts. It was the songwriter, Stevie Wonder. He got all the money. But in Canada, the Chili Peppers were paid. There are many performing rights organizations around the planet. Maybe you've seen abbreviations like PRS or PPL. They work out of Britain. Germany has GEMA, G-E-M-A, which stands for something in German that I can't pronounce, and Ditto France's SACEM. The next word in our music industry glossary is producer. In the movie business, the producer is the person who raises the money for the production of the film. In the music business, the producer is the person who oversees the making of a recording of a song or an album. His or her goal is to take the material from the artist and turn it into the best possible finished product. The producer will help with songwriting, arranging, the technical arrangements within the studio, managing the budget, and mixing the music. Depending on the situation, the producer may be called to hire the appropriate session musicians to help with the recording process. The best producers are also coaches and psychologists and lion tamers and peacemakers. Dealing with musicians as they create can be a very, very tricky sort of thing. There are two ways that producers get paid. Some take a flat fee. Just, you know, pay me for my time and we're done. Others take a piece of the action when it comes to the sales and other revenue generated by that music. Here are some names that you may have encountered. George Martin, who is famous for his work with the Beatles. Daniel Lanois, the Canadian, who was a big part of U2's success. Steve Lillywhite, Quincy Jones, Rick Rubin, Dr. Dre, Butch Vig, Danger Mouse, Jimmy Iovine, Mutt Lang, John Lecky, Nigel Godrich, Brian Eno. All men, right? Well, that's been the case for decades, although there are some women in the mix as well. Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, Linda Perry, and Sylvia Massey, who has worked with everyone from System of a Down to the Chili Peppers to the Smashing Pumpkins. She also produced and engineered Tool's Undertow album from 1993. Tool's Prison Sex from the Undertow album, and the producer there was Sylvia Massey. One more term for this program, and in a moment we'll come back with it, and it's also brought to you by the letter P. We have one more music industry term, and it's from the letter P, and that's publishing. Now, you've no doubt heard about an artist getting a publishing deal, and we've talked about paying publishers over the last two programs. So what exactly does publishing mean? In the old days, and I'm talking about more than 100 years ago, it meant just that. A songwriter would take a song to a company who would then publish it as sheet music. Then that company would send out representatives to try to get performers to add it to their repertoire. If people in the audience liked the song, they would hopefully seek out the sheet music so they could play it for themselves at home. This is long before the recorded music industry developed into what it is today. Some of these publishing reps back in the day would even stand out in the street singing the song, hoping that someone would come up to them and say, Hey, Joe, that's a mighty fine tune you're belting out there. 
where might I get a copy of the sheet music? When player pianos came along, these were pianos that played themselves using these big rolls of perforated paper that were loaded inside, music publishers would publish them too. Fast forward a couple of decades, and we finally get the modern definition of music publishing. A company signs a deal with a songwriter who assigns the copyright, literally the right to copy, to that song. We talked about that in part one. And from that point on, the music publisher tries to get that songwriter's music into more places, such as with other artists and movies, TV commercials, whatever, which, by the way, are known as sync or synchronization rights. The publisher also protects the music from being ripped off. You don't want somebody else you know, copying the song or performing the song without paying the appropriate fees. And finally, the publisher collects royalties based on what they've managed to do with that music and then pays the songwriter. When you hear of a new band signing a publishing deal, it's very possible that they get an advance against future earnings of their songs. This helps a new artist get established. Once, or if that advance is paid off, the publisher will continue to receive a commission for the work they do on behalf of the songwriter. Publishing is a very important piece of intellectual property, and the publisher's job is to protect and exploit that property. And ownership of one's publishing is a very, very, very big deal. Artists are often duped into signing away their publishing rights to a record label, or to a manager, or to a producer, or somebody else. These are among the worst record industry disputes and rip-offs. It's how the Beatles managed to lose control of a vast number of their songs. Biggest band ever, and they weren't making money from so many of their songs that they released before 1966. Here's an example of how getting publishing wrong can ruin everything. In 1997, Richard Ashcroft of The Verve came up with a song called Bittersweet Symphony. He was inspired by an old record he found somewhere. It was the Rolling Stones songbook, a collection of covers by the Andrew Lug Oldham Orchestra. It was released in 1965. Now, Lug Oldham was the original manager of the Rolling Stones. And back then, it was common to take hits of the day and arrange them for fans of easy listening music. I mean, really water them down so people who were offended by rock and roll wouldn't be offended by these rock and roll songs. And that's really what we have here. It was a record of orchestral versions of Rolling Stone songs that were recorded in 1965 and earlier. On this record was Andrew Lug Oldham's interpretation of the Stone song, The Last Time, from 1965. Okay, you got that? Oldham's version sounded like this. Same song, but arranged for orchestra and slowed down a bit. Richard Ashcroft loved that five-note progression, so he went to his people and asked them to license permission to use that snippet from Abco Music, the company that owned the publishing and the copyright to that song. Permission was granted in exchange for 50% of any money the song made. Okay, that, that was steep, 50%, but okay, fine, whatever. From there, The Verve went on and recorded Bittersweet Symphony. They slapped it at the beginning of their 1997 album, Urban Hymns, and they saw it become a big hit, the biggest of their career, actually. But Abco Music, which, by the way, was controlled by Alan Klein, the guy who managed to get all that music away from the Beatles back in the 60s, freaked out 
when they heard the final product. Abco Music sued, saying that The Verve used more of the sample than was spelled out in the licensing agreement. Abco Records sued The Verve for plagiarism, which, as we've seen, alleges a breach of copyright, publishing rights, and intellectual property. And their terms were simple. All right, give us 100% of the money made from this song, or we will force you to recall every single copy of the song and album from every store and radio station and whatever worldwide. To add insult to this, Andrew Lou Goldham also sued the band, claiming the Verve also owed him money for something known as royalties. A royalty is the income the owner of a song gets from the use of the song. We already talked about airplay royalties when we spoke about performing rights agencies. In this case, we're talking about a mechanical royalty. That's what an artist makes for having a song included on a CD and whatever sales that CD achieves. Because Urban Hymns was a successful record, Lou Goldham figured he was owed $1.7 million. So the verve was over a barrel. They had no choice but to surrender to Abco Music and Andrew Lou Goldham. The songwriting credits were quickly amended from saying that the song belonged to Ashcroft to Ashcroft Jagger Richards. And from that point on, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards made 100% of the money from the publishing of Bittersweet Symphony. And as yet another kick in the teeth, Abco almost immediately licensed the Verve recording, which they now owned, to Nike for a TV commercial. Now, remember back in 1997, this sort of thing was seen as the height of selling out. It just wasn't cool. You did not use a cool song to sell something. This destroyed the Verve's artistic integrity in the eyes of their indie fan base, even though it wasn't the band's fault and they had nothing to do with it. And, oh, there was a final shot. Bittersweet Symphony was nominated for a Grammy Award in the category of Best Song, and the ballot listed the songwriters of Bittersweet Symphony as Jagger Richards. Oh, and I'm still not quite done. The sample that Verve took from the Andrew Lug Oldham version of The Last Time that was written for the song by an orchestral arranger named David Whitaker. He wrote it. He wrote that five-note bit. Where do you think his credits appear? Nowhere. I hope this glossary of music industry terms cleared up a few things. There are many, many, many more, but I think we've covered all the main ones. If you want to review things, the program is available as a podcast. Just go to the Apple Podcast Store, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Download and go. All the podcasts are always free. If you want music information on a regular basis, take a look at my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day. And to alert you about what's being updated, there's a free newsletter. Just go to the website and you can sign up for that. Elsewhere, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And give me a follow if you can. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 